This is Josh Mills. Welcome to another episode of Acquired Tastings. We are ecstatic to have you guys back with us for another week. Once again, I'm here and we're going to be kind of doing things a little bit differently. For those of you who follow us out there on the social media world, you may see that there is a video that's actually that goes along with this. And it's just me again this week, me and you. This time we're going to run this a little bit like a class. So I'm very excited today for this wonderful wine week. For this wine week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing Easter and Passover wine. So Easter's coming up. I know the Passover is coming up as well as we're getting ready to post this. So I thought it'd be really cool to go ahead and do some wines that you could have with both the Seder meal and your Easter supper. So we have the two wines that we're doing this week are the Chateau d'Aquera Tavel Rosé. And this comes from the south of France. We're going to give that, talking more about that. That's our Easter wine. And then our kosher wine for the Seder is the Barkin Classic Cabernet Sauvignon. And this actually comes out of Israel. So I'm pretty excited to talk about this one once we get to it. We've got some great pairings this week as well. We've got some braised brisket. We've got some latkes. I have some ham. Couldn't find any lamb. I was thinking about doing some lamb, but we're going to ahead and have some ham. And then we have scallop potatoes. And then as a dessert, which is, this is actually a kosher dessert because I was able to find one, a chocolate lava cake. And for those of you following along the drinking game, get ready to drink because all of our food today came from Trader Joe's. Most of it came from the freezer, the pre-prepared sections. If you're following along with the drinking game, go ahead and get on it. Before we move on for <laughs> into these wonderful wines, we got to talk about the blind. Now, you've got to think back all the way back to the rye episode. And Jordan blind me on a liquor. And I thought it was a Highland Scotch, which was over 12 years old. And let's see what it is. All right. I was able to get it right this time. This is the Glenlivet 14, a single malt scotch from the Highland. And it's aged in or finished in a cognac cast, which gives it kind of a nice rounder flavor, which I think was giving it some of that smoothness and softness that I kept talking about during the episode. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our wonderful wines for this week. First up, we're going to be doing the Chateau d'Aquera Tavel Rosé with the ham, scallop potatoes, and the chocolate lava cake. And first of all, I want to say, oh man, that is a beautiful color on this wine. I love rosé. I'm not even going to be ashamed about it. I love rosé and I love Tavel rosés. Now you may be wondering, where is Tavel? Okay, so Tavel comes from the southern Rhone region in France. So here's a map of just southern Rhone. You'll see right there in the, in the big red spot here, this is Chateau Neuf de Pop. So we're, do, we're, very, we're in some really good area. We've got Cote de Rhone following around it. And then if we keep going down, I think it's maybe about an hour drive from where we're at on this map, we're into the Provence region. So we're definitely down, down in this more southern part of France. And if you'll notice this pink spot right here, this little itty bitty pink spot, that's just not very far over the river from Chateau de Pop, that is Tavel. 
that is the region where we're going to be drinking from today. And first of all, I want to say this is just a nice, it's a bolder rosé. It's got a lot of flavor going on. It's got a lot of strawberry, a lot of cherry, a lot of acid. Mm. There's some underripe characteristic to it, but that acid just kind of pops and pulls through. Brings some almost some citrusy kind of flavors to it. It's super, super delicious. So once again, we're right here in this Tavel region. And Tavel, actually, like I mentioned, is art just across the river from Cote d'Aron. It only makes rosé, which one of the things that I think is really cool about Tavel is that it only, it only makes rosé. And it's a small region. You know, it's only 90, 933 hectares. Sorry, I'm going to have to stop and drink because this stuff is so good. It's a 933 hectares, which is about 2,300 acres. So not that big of an area. And like I said, they only make rosé, and it's got to come from the region of Tavel. Uh, before we talk about the grapes of this, let's just talk about this wine some more because it's so pretty. Like I said, it's got it's got a whole lot of red fruit characteristic. It has... Also, it's got, like I mentioned, some underripe, so it's almost like underripe strawberry. You have that light, extra kind of like bitterness to it that kind of wakens your mouth. The acidity's pumping, but there's this depth of flavor as well, which kind of rounds out this rosé. So it's not one of those rosés that just kind of sails through your palate and is there light, fun, fresh, and then it's gone. This one actually will like linger a little bit more. One of the things I kind of say about Tavelles is Tavelles are kind of red wine drinkers rosés because they're bigger, they're more robust, usually in characteristic. And a lot of that comes from the types of grapes that are used. Notice on, on the page here, we're talking Syrah, we're talking Grenache, we're talking Movedra, Cinso, and all these wonderful grapes. They're not just red. We both both red and white because other varieties down there, you know, we've got Picpole and Carignan as well that kind of round it out. And I think that's what make to me, that's one of the things that makes Tavel special when it comes to their rosés. They use red and white grapes to bring in these different kind of flavors, whereas for a lot of rosés out there, it may be just one or two varieties. It may be Cinso. It may be Carignan. It may be Grenache. It may be Movedra. I've even seen some Syrah out there, but they're usually not a whole bunch of different ones to make a wonderful bouquet like this one here. Man, I just can't get over that color. I mean, looking with the light that's going on in the room, it's almost like it could be the could be the acquired tastings glass on my shirt. You know, this is just and I, I I can't I keep going back to how it's it's got a depth of flavor, almost like a unctuous or umaminess to it, and a great bit of acid running through it. Now, one of the things about Tavel, this is actually the 2020 rosé. So this was actually made uh, under COVID, which is kind of interesting to think about. This rosé is only it's like maybe 12. Uh, it's 14 percent. That's uh, 14%. So it's a little bit up there compared to some of the other rosés that you might find, which may be down in, you know, 12, 11, 12% range. But this is just so light and fresh with that depth and that unctuousness. I think I'm going to go ahead and get into some of my pairings. So before we talk about the, the vintner who makes this. Uh, so once again, 
I've got some pretty traditional Easter pairings. And, you know, kind of one of the reasons I picked Tavel is not only does rosé, I think, go well with a lot of Easter food. The whole history behind Chateau Neuf de Pop in that area, with it being involved with or formerly involved with the Catholic Church and the new home of the Pope, I decided it was kind of appropriate that it would be our Easter one. Mm. So some good classic ham with that sweet kind of woodiness to it. Very excited about this pairing. I like that lighter style of ham, extra sweetness that it brings because the wine isn't a whole lot of sweet. Like I talked about, there's a lot of backbone for the bitterness that's in this wine. Mm. Yeah, that goes well. It brings out the bitterness a little bit because of that sweetness of the ham, but the that umami and that kind of cherry, bright cherry, bright strawberry flavors go really well with the ham. And kind of, kind of pick it up a little bit. Mm. I have to slow down on that wine. It's just so damn good. You know, I'm gonna eat a little bit and just kind of chat about some traditions in my family. So my family celebrates Easter. We actually don't celebrate Passover. We talk about Passover in the tradition of of Easter and how they are traditionally they're a little they're linked with some of the timings of it, but. Easter's always been one of those times where it's been about the family getting together and coming together and sharing, sharing a wonderful meal together. Usually for us, we have ham. It's usually a honey baked ham or some kind of spiral cut ham. There's scalloped potatoes like we have now. There's usually like an asparagus or some sort of green beans, some sort of really fresh vegetable because a lot of the springtime vegetables are coming out in Arkansas when when Easter usually is because of our growing seasons a little bit earlier than other parts of the country and other parts of the world. So it's, it's really nice because you can get some really wonderful fresh. Sometimes, depending on when Easter is, you can get fresh Arkansas strawberries. Now, you, you've been around long enough. You know we've, we've talked and ranted and raved about how great we think Arkansas strawberries are. And that would be a great pairing with this wine. Just because of the bright sweetness, but yet the acidity that would that would drive through and connect the wine together. This is another pool wine for me because it's it's just it's easy to drink. It's light. It's fresh. It's not even though it's full flavored. It's not really weighty on your palate. It doesn't fatigue your palate like other other beverages can. Now let's uh let's get into these potatoes. So these are uh, four cheese scalloped potatoes with some. I think they've got green onion in them and definitely some garlic some kicking garlic in there once again out of the out of the trader joe's fresh aisle just pop this all in the oven together that cheesy earthy high toniness of the of this of the scalp potato dish i think it's actually got some leeks in there just a really nice kind of fresh green oniony kind of flavor that goes well. It brings out a lot of the like um, underripeness of it, which kind of, I know you may be thinking, oh, Josh, you're talking about all the bitter stuff, but um, what it is, is the food runs around the outside of your mouth, kind of, and the wine runs to the middle. So you get some of that bitterness and then you get some of that light, fresh fruit acidity and almost a little bit of pithiness, but it's not in a bad way. It's super fresh, super bright. And it still has that unctuousness 
that I really enjoy in the style of rosés. Now, I love every style of rosé. I love the really, you know, almost clear looking ones. And then I love all the way up to these big, bold ones. Bell used to have a rosé a Syrah. I love the entire thing. Now, Chateau d'Aquera, that was initially bought from the monks in the 1590s. So they have been working the land for a, a long, long time. This was another one of those regions or areas in France where the Catholic Church came in during the expansion of the Catholic Church and saw, hey, we need to make sacramental wine. So we've got we've got to plant them and they found good places to grow. There is a legend that says one time Louis the 15th or Louis the 14th was riding through Tavel on his horse and somebody handed him a glass of wine and the wine was so good that he finished it all in one drink and declared that this was the best wine he'd ever had and rode on. So there is a lot of history in connection with Tavel and Louis the 14th. So that's why when you see the Chateau de Quez castle or their chateau and their grounds, they follow a lot of those same stylings and gardening philosophies as Louis the 14th. Cause the family was connected to the court at that time. I'm going to jump back to the map real quick. So we talked about how Tavel is just right here on the other side of, of the river. So when we're talking about the soil types here, you gotta, you know, that's going to influence the soil. So the soils are kind of different all over and the different types of soil give different qualities to the wine. One of the things that I noticed that kind of ran through when they were talking about their soil was kind of a, a hardiness to the wine. And we can see that as we taste it, that it has that kind of that unctuous, that body, that depth to the wine that you see. Now this blend for Chateau de Aquera is 40% Grenache. It's 20% Clarete, which I'm pretty sure is actually a white or a pink skin grape. And you have 15% Senso, Ovejo Syrah, Bordenake, and Pickpool kind of rounding out. Now, Pickpool, you're seeing that down at 2%. And you're like, why are they even throwing that in there? Pickpool is a pretty high acid grape and adds some of that, I think, adds some of that extra acid and some of that pithiness that I've been talking about. And they talk about how the main soil these Tavels that they grow are a, a sandy kind of clay type of on the hillside. So it will kind of wash through one of the things about the, when you have that kind of mixture of sand and clay, clay will hold the water. Sand actually lets it run through. So it does a good thing of balancing itself out when they may get too much or not enough. Another thing about Tavel is they are affected by the Mistral's. Uh, the Mistral are the big winds that run up the Rhone Valley and actually, I think, go all the way, go all the way up and can affect not quite all the way up to Burgundy, but kind of over in that area. And it's just a great wind that actually runs up from the Mediterranean Sea through the Rhone River Valley and helps it to stay a little cooler than it might be because it's kind of central, you know, if, when we think about where the Rhone is, it's a little bit more central, a little bit more, especially the Northern Rhone. It's a little bit higher in the latitudes than and away from bodies of water. So they need that kind of cooling effect 
just kind of like the Central Valley in California, have a a breeze that runs in through the valley to cool down to cool down the valley. And that was that's what allows them to grow some white grapes in the hot part of the Central Coast. So the same kind of thing is going on in in this area too, which allows for some of these cooler climate uh reds and as well as the the whites that may not grow that may need a lot cooler of a climate. All right, time to get into this cake. I was very surprised. So when I was looking up and doing research on this podcast for what I was going to pair and actually started with the foods this time because I knew I wanted to do a couple things which may be at a traditional or a, a Jewish Seder meal, not the actual tenets of the Seder meal, but at the actual meal for Passover. I really wanted to hit a dessert on both for Easter and, and I found this chocolate lava cake and it was on both both things I was looking at. And then when I was looking at Trader Joe's, I actually found out that the one they, they have is kosher. So it does fit in there. So for those of you, if you're looking for a quick dessert for your Jewish friends who follow the kosher diet, you can find these little lava cakes. And boy, that is a lovely, lovely little chocolatey piece. And you know, I also was thinking when, with Easter, all the chocolate that's around during Easter, not just the jelly bean style, but all the chocolate that's around for Easter. This could be a great little snack, great little wine to go along with it. Mm, it's so good. So the chocolate, it's kind of a semi-bitter chocolate, and it's really rich in filling in the mouth with that kind of gooey center that you get with a lava cake, and it just kind of sits and covers and coats, and that wine comes in like a raspberry sauce would with that bittery, sweet fruitiness that just kind of runs through and kind of takes over and just makes it taste so good. And man, you know, the other two things were good, but that, that so far has been spectacular. And that so far has been my, probably my favorite pairing. So I was talking about Easter a little bit earlier and, you know, Easter and my family, we, is a time we'd get together. Usually uh, before my grandparents passed away, we would spend time with them. And it was really a, a time of togetherness, which I think only holidays can do. And they don't have to be religious holidays. It can be getting together to celebrate the, the spring equinox and, or just the rebirth of, of, the, of the world. And I think it's just great that we get to spend these times together. And I think the traditions that, that we have can just kind of carry on and this Tavel would be great at any type of gathering like that. If you have people who are more vegetarian or vegan minded, I think this, ro- this rosé would go well with that because it does have the depth that kind of can go with some of those more earthy and grassy styles of foods. I'm thinking about asparagus and even just like some fresh salads, those sorts of things. And be careful with the dressings. If it's a really creamy dressing, I don't know if it would go as well as maybe a lighter kind of lemony or citrusy balsamic kind of feeling. And I think this wine would hold up with some spicy foods too. I've actually done this wine with ribs before and it holds up. It holds up really well. The alcohol doesn't become too prevalent. Having that extra little fruitiness kind of calms down what's going on with the ribs in your mouth. And I think it's just a, it's just a really great, a great pairing. 
So I think that's all I've got right now about this wine. So we're going to go ahead and pop over. I'm going to rotate my plate around and we are going to go to the Barkan Barkan Classic Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, this is a kosher wine from Israel. And the pairings we have tonight with it are some braised brisket. We have some classic latkes and the chocolate lava cake. I made sure when it came to all these foods that they are kosher. Once again, they were, you know, bought, but they are kosher. And because I wanted to kind of keep the theme of the Passover meal here. So we have never done an Israeli wine and Israeli wine is actually growing quite a lot. And you can see this is the wine map from Israel. The Cabernet that we are drinking are coming up here in Gal in the kind of in the Galilee in the Golan Heights. So more to the northern part of the country and a little bit inland. But one of the things that helps it from the inland, because we know we're getting toward kind of desert area, is they have elevation in their favor, kind of like in South America, how they'll use the elevation to gain those cooler climates. And then they also have the breezes coming in off the Mediterranean Sea and affected with the Sea of Galilee as well. And it's really cool to think about that, you know, when we talk about some of the history of Israeli wine, you know, for those of us who follow the Christian faith, they talk, of, they talk about making wine in Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. So way, way back, Israel has a tradition of making wine. It was a major trade route from Egypt and Mes between Egypt and Mesopotamia, where we know alcohol was prominent. And because of that trade route, there was a passing of knowledge and influence. And the growers and the merchants around there said, hey, if we can make some money off these travelers who are going through, let's go ahead and figure out how to do it. And also, with the expansion of the, of the Roman Empire, it became not only just a growing region locally, but it came in a region for export. So they were, they were growing enough that they were exporting it to other parts of the empire at the same time. And that's, I mean, to me, that's pretty cool. We're gonna, I'm going to kind of stop here for a second before we start talking about the modern stuff. And let's just take a look at this wine. It is a beautiful, beautiful looking wine. It's got that nice purpley color out to kind of more of a watery meniscus. It's clear. It's a good looking clean wine. Oh man, you get a lot of those same tendencies of Cabernet Sauvignon here. You get some of that kind of blackberry bramble cassis. And then there's like this dusty overtone to it, which is really interesting to me. And it's, but it's not like I've talked, I talk about how Italian is dusty to me. This wine has this like dusty characteristic that's it's not it's not the normal dust that i'm used to when i talk about like italian wines or even some french wines it's almost like a like a honey dust or a like a almost like a beeswaxiness that comes through but it's really pleasant onto the wine oh it's lighter on the palate than i expected it's, it's not real tannin heavy the alcohol is not very heavy on it either it's 11.5, so that's the alcohol on it is very light compared to other Cabernet Sauvignons. And I think some of that is because of the cooler growing environment that this 
uh, wine grows in, but it's very, it's very delicious wine. And I am, I've had this wine before, so I, I don't want to say that I'm surprised by it, but it is very, very good. You know, talking about some, going back to some of the history of Israeli wines is in modern times, the Baron de Rothschild from Lafie Rothschild of the wonderful top, top crew house in France actually did a lot, of, has a lot of influence in Israeli wine by bringing, helping bring some of the varietals and helping to establish one of the first modern wineries, Carmel Winery in 1882. And influencing and in, in, in bringing in the different knowledge of Riles. And now the wine that's made in Israel predominantly focuses on kosher wines and they're mostly European varietals. Now, there's a very small percentage which is still used for sacramental purposes. Um, most of it is made for the modern consumer market and quite a bit of it is actually imported to the United States. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into these pairings. So once again, I've got some braised roasted beef here some brisket, and then I've got some latkes. And then once again, that chocolate cake, I'm going to go ahead and just dive into this beef because it has been smelling delicious. Oh, and it just falls apart. Mm. It's got a nice big beefy flavor. And because of that fat and the sauce that it's braised in, Get a nice earthy quality to it, but you still get that wonderful meaty, beefy flavor. Ooh, man, that goes well together. Something about red wine and beef, guys. I know we kind of sometimes we downplay red wine and beef, but there's something about red wine and beef that goes really well. But this, that higher fruit, that like dusty, beeswaxy quality, just marry up really well with this beef. It's almost like, and I said it with the other one too, it's almost like it has an extra sauce to it. It has some of those higher cherry. It seems to me that they're coming up more black cherry rather than blackberry kind of notes with this. It is very good, though. I'm going to go ahead and take just take me another bite. It's, it's just falling apart, melting. I have never actually been uh, to a traditional Passover meal, including the whole Seder ritual, which I think would be really cool to see knowing that the some of the background of it I think would be really interesting to see and be part of the ritual of of that. I, I just really enjoy it. So this wine goes really well with this beef. You know, this is actually um a thirteen dollar bottle of wine. So it's super affordable, super cheap, light on the alcohol, so you're not gonna get overly shammered on it it's almost like these two alcohols are are flip-flopped where you know rosés are usually a little bit lighter and the cabs are usually a bit heavier heavier but these are you know kind of flip-flopped in that way which is kind of interesting but i think it would be really cool to see the full ritual of a full seder meal and to participate in that and just to be exposed to it it's also interesting to me like currently right now while i'm recording this it's ramadan you know, we're in the month of Ramadan and, you know, the traditions that go along with Ramadan as well, I think would be another interesting piece to see when it comes to this whole religions that come out of the Middle East area 
and where they kind of align, where they kind of separate. Um, so happy Ramadan to those of you who maybe are Muslim followers. And we really appreciate having you on the show. Also, it's interesting to me that when I was preparing for this meal, uh, meat and potatoes came up in both traditions. You know, we have ham in our scalloped potatoes in for Easter. You know, we also use lamb a lot of time. The lamb is also a Passover, can be done at Passover. Um, and then you have the meat and then you have latkes, which are actually a potato, like a little potato pancake. They're really, really good. And they just have that. It's almost like a smashed tomato, not tomato, a smashed potato or like a hash brown patty with a, with a lot more flavor going on to it. A lot of times they're served with some kind of sour cream or some sort of uh, dairy topping on them. I chose to do them just plain. That rich kind of almost fried potato-y feeling with that mm, kind of a higher tone. It's going to be interesting how it goes well because this is not a traditional cab. Oh, but it goes well. Once again, it takes it a little bit more to a red fruit area where we're talking about more cherry and cranberry kind of flavors over like blackberry, blueberry, cassis kind of flavors. Now I'm going to do something pretty fun. I'm going to make a bite. And while I make the bite, we're going to go ahead and take a look at a little bit more about the uh, climate and geography of Israel. You know, Israel is roughly the size of New Jersey for those of us who are here in America and may understand that size a little bit better. But the latitudes and the latitudes run between like San Diego and the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's it's in a in a more arid part of I mean, even if you think about San Diego and the U.S.-Mexico border, it definitely is a little bit more kind of an arid climate. But they both have that influence of a large body of water, just like the Mediterranean defines Israel. The growing season, uh, so the spring and summer, is dry, so they use drip irrigation uh, to help with that. They also use some canoping techniques to where they'll grow the canopy up over the grapes to shield them from the sun, which can be damaging to the grapes. And when we're talking about the northern part of the country, there, and actually in quite a bit of the country, there are a lot of little microclimates because. It's a little bit hillier. Um, it's not as flat. It's not a big plain like a lot of the southern part of Israel is. So there's a lot of little microclimates where they have these vineyards that aren't aren't very large at all. You know, maybe um, maybe like 20, 20 hectares so, or maybe even smaller than that. They just have these little kind of pocketed, pocketed um, vineyards that... The microclimate right there shows that it could grow grapes. Kind of reminds me of what happens sometimes up in Washington State, where you have these different microclimates where, you know, you may be growing red wine here, but 50 feet up the hill, you may be able to grow white wine because it's so much cooler up there. So that's kind of the feel I get when I read a little bit into about the northern part of the country. So kind of where we were talking about Galilee and the Gohan Hills. So an interesting thing when it comes to Israel is if we're 
if we are aware of what's going on in that region, not only has the country of Israel itself, but Israel also occupies territories within other nations and country groups. And Israeli wine is made actually from both Israeli and Israeli-occupied territories. There are actually a few in the West Bank, which are actually Arab Christian-owned, which is very interesting to see. And I would be very interested to learn a little bit more about those stories, but it's just not quite uh, where we're going this week. But it was very interesting. Barkin Vineyards came up at the end of the 19th century along with Carmel Winery. So they're some of the older areas when it comes to winemaking for Israel in the modern era. So the bite that I just made, so good. The bite was some of the meat on top of the latka. It's so good. Goes super well with the wine. It actually is almost like a perfect bite when it comes to that. But um, one of the things that Barkin Wine focuses on, particularly with their Israeli wines, is they focus on not only the varieties, but what breeds and clones within the varieties work best for Israel. So they're kind of one of the ones that taking charge of making Israeli wine the focus and pushing it forward to be better than it is. Um, we think about you know throwing a different rootstock or picking clones and and those sorts of things as kind of what moves wine region forwards. And Barkin is one of those places that does that for Israeli wines. Uh, this is 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. And like we talked about, I'm going to jump back to the map real quick. It comes from the Upper Galilee region and the Golan Hills. We have the Sea of Galilee right there. And like I mentioned before, these wines are kosher. I drank a little bit more of this than I did the Tavel. Actually, you know what I'm going to say. I didn't drink more. I just poured myself less of the Barkin than I did the Tavel. So I'm going to pour myself a little bit more because I haven't even tried the cake yet. Super excited to try this cake. But before that, I'm going to have another little bite of, of latka and beef here. You know, I think this, I think both these wines would actually go well with all the food we have on the plate today. Doing my little happy dance as I eat. That works so well. It's a little bit of extra bitterness though that kind of creeps in or like a, almost like a, a burnt herb that kind of creeps in there just a little bit, which makes it not as exciting as I was expecting. But I bet if I had a good gravy going on, that fat and that unctuousness would kind of take over. This is so exciting. You know, I think, like I said before, I think either of these wines would go really well with um, all the food. The only dietary restriction would be that the Tavel is not actually labeled kosher. So if you are serving it to people who eat 100% kosher, make sure you have another wine uh, for them, which is kosher. And this Barkin is a great opportunity. Oh, that's delicious. I just tried the potato. Okay, it's done. All these wines are going to go well. But before I can pour up, a secret special blind that I have. I've got to try some cake with this. You know, I've got this wonderful kosher lava cake. I've got to jump in and get a bite. And remember, it's not a super bitter chocolate, but it does have a bitter side to it, almost like a brownie. Mmm. Girl, that's good. That lava cake is so good, especially for coming out of the freezer section. Whew. It's it's awesome. Ooh. You know, that's really interesting. This wine takes over that cake. You know, we talked about this before when it comes to desserts, how 
red wine and chocolate may not be one of the best pairings depending on what goes on. But this wine, the fruit, the beeswax disappears. Every like all the beeswax, all the the earthy, the dustiness, kind of go away from this one, and it just leaves that beautiful fruit flavor of the wine to kind of carry you through until your next sip or your next bite. So for Dave out there, Dave, this would be, I think, a cleansing pairing, kind of as we talked about, kind of refreshes your palate for your next body or food. But I've been yabbering along here, so let's get on to best on plate. Ooh, okay, so best, I'm going to say this, probably the best thing that I had overall, 1,000% best bite, best sip, was this chocolate lava cake and that Tavelle. The way the bitterness and the the wine became like a raspberry sauce on top of the cake was just out of this world. It was it was fantastic. Um besides that, the scalp potatoes went really, really well with the rose. I'm actually gonna try try but I think if I'm just doing the three the best was that Tavel and the chocolate lava cake. Oh, dang. Slap your mama. That's good. Okay. Yeah. These wine, both these wines will go with everything on the plate. That Tavel will hold up to that beef, and that was absolutely delicious. As for the Barkin, I think the best bite that I had with the Barkin, as much as I initially liked my first bite of the latka and the beef, I think just the beef went went the best. That second bite where I was getting this weird kind of burnt burnt herb flavor kind of turned me off to it when I started thinking back to it. But the beef, mm, the beef with that wine goes really well. This like fattiness goes with that light, fresh, kind of fresher style and worked so, so well with that. But now I've got to pour up a blind. I actually had somebody pour me a little vial of wine for me to blind on this episode. So I'm going to go ahead and get that poured up for us. Okay. So we have a Milan poured up here. It is a beautiful looking red wine. It is a lighter in color. Almost. Let me find some white. Uh, maybe starting to go out to a almost a bricky kind of meniscus, kind of where it's changing color, getting a little bit or, more orangey. But it is light. It is clear. There is no evidence of gas or sediment in it. The tears are kind of medium, maybe a little bit on the heavier side. Let's go ahead and give this wine a smell. Mm. So this wine is, it's deep. It's rich. There's some like desiccated flowers on it. There's some like almost tariness to it. But definitely earthy backbone. Fruit characteristic is dried if I'm smelling anything. And yeah, it's kind of, it's more on the dried, definitely more on that dried side when it comes to the fruit flavors. It's a little bit of kind of herbaceousness back there to it. Some, almost some kind of dried herbiness. But yeah, it's definitely characterized by that flower, that desiccatedness, that earthy that almost like tarry kind of quality let's give it a taste mm. Ooh. okay so tannins are tannins are higher this one acid is pretty up there as well 
the alcohol is, you know, probably in that 13, 14 range. And when you aerate it, it gets kind of feathery, <laughs> not uh, feathery, like felty kind of on the palate. So that let me know those tannins are really up there. But when I just drink it, it's very lean in texture, probably medium on the body. There is some dried cherry, more blackberry, not blackberry, black cherry, some kind of dried cranberryness to it. And, but it's still ruled by that desiccated flower, you know, roses, violets. And we're not talking like potpourri y. We're talking more like dead and dying kind of feel. And the earthiness, the rich underneath earthiness is there. There's some, there's a little bit of kind of like peppery spice to it, but it's definitely a bolder wine. Man, those tannins are just ripping. The acids make my mouth water again. It's super interesting. There's definitely uh, oak usage on this. You get, you do get some baking, baking spices to it. It's softer around the edges. So that allows, that lets you know that there's been some time in oak in it as well. With that almost bricking to start, there may be also some age in play with this wine. So maybe it's a varietal that usually sits for a little while before it's actually out on the market. I'm going to go ahead and jump down and say this is this is an old world style wine. The possible great varieties here, I would say, are Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, and maybe Grenache. Possible countries we're looking at, France, Italy, and Spain. I think with the bricking, we're looking, you know, 2015, 2017 kind of age range here. You know, being that it's 2022 now, that would be a five to seven year age range and give it another taste before I land this plane. As I like to say, here's, I mean, I'm going to take one, I'm going to take one more taste. This is really, really good. By the way, I would drink this by the gallon. Okay. I think this is a Nebbiolo grape wine. I think it's from Northern Italy from, uh, how am I going to figure this one out? Anyway, it's Nebbiolo from northern italy it is either barolo or barbaresco i'm gonna say it's a 2016 it's got a little bit extra age in there which is kind of that bricking's kind of fooling me i'm hoping it's not just the plate or what i'm looking at right now it's a good good producer and you know what i'm gonna say this is a barbaresco so i'm gonna say it's a barbaresco it's from from northern italy and it's made from nebbiolo and it's from 2016 a fairly good producer and that is all i've got for you guys today i want to thank you very much for spending another chunk of your time with me here we're on another podcast remember we're out there on social media land we're on instagram facebook and twitter we're most active on instagram working out the kinks to tiktok trying to make sure we can get out there and be a shining light to you guys when it comes to a great podcast out there. Uh, hopefully next week, uh, dad will be back with us. You know, he's doing that gallivanting thing. Like he does that retired life, man. One of these days I'm going to get there. I swear. I keep telling myself one of these days I'm going to get to retirement age. And I just keep looking at my bank account and saying, man, that's going to be a long way away. But one of these days it'll show up and then it'll be my turn to go gallivanting like dad does. 
Uh, next week, we're, we're like we're back on our normal rotation. So next week is a beer week. Uh, we have, I haven't quite decided what we're going to be doing as our beer episode next week because I'm still not quite sure if dad is going to be back or not. So just be watching out, be uh, seeing what we're going to what we put out there on the socials for what we're going to be doing. And I am very happy to have you guys along with us. Please give us a like, follow, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a like, a follow, share our share our content out there on social media. We'd love to have you that share with your friends. Hey, hopefully, knocking on some wood, uh, COVID is slowly starting to end. So hopefully you can start having some parties. Get together, have a listening party with your friends. If you want to just say, hey, Josh, I'm thinking about doing a party. What do you think I should do? Feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to help you plan that experience for you and your friends now that we're able to kind of get back together and get a little bit back to normal. And I'm just so happy that you guys are here along with us. We just love seeing how many people are downloading our stuff and how much how much excitement and how much hopefully how much joy you guys are getting out of it. I had a great reach out from Becky this week telling me that she was at a bar and she told the bartender to put the salt in the cocktail and the bartender was like, no, you don't want to do that. But she she persisted and she ended up loving the cocktail. So I was super happy to hear about that, having that great experience. And uh, we just love that dialogue from you guys. And we hope to have more of it as we continue on in the future. I really appreciate you guys being along with us. And once again, I'm Josh Mills and we'll see you next time.